This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Tansé, bonjour, and hello everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the President. My name is Brad Regeer. The 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission report contained 94 calls to action, things that needed to be done in order for reconciliation to take place. In this episode, we're going to discuss number 28, which calls on law schools to require students to take a course in Aboriginal people and the law. Today, I've invited two legal academics to talk about what this course might look like. Val Napoleon is no stranger to Indigenous curricula. She's an Associate Professor and Law Foundation Professor of Aboriginal Justice and Governance at the University of Victoria. She co-founded UVic's Indigenous Law Research Unit and the Joint Degree Program in Canadian Common Law and Indigenous Legal Orders JD, JID that launched in 2019. She is from Northeast British Columbia Treaty 8 and a member of the Sautu First Nation. Signa Dom Shanks is Métis, born and raised in Saskatchewan. She became part of the full-time faculty at Osgoode Hall in 2014 as the school's inaugural director of Indigenous Outreach. At Osgoode, she teaches torts, law and economics, game theory in the law, and Indigenous peoples in Canadian law. She's written extensively on issues surrounding Indigenous history. She's also an active CBA member and currently sits on the board of the Ontario Bar Association. Welcome to the podcast, Val and Signa. Delighted to be here. Would you like to introduce yourselves to our audience? Absolutely. I'm Val Napoleon. I'm a research chair with the Faculty of Law at the University of Victoria. I'm the director of the Indigenous Law Degree Program and the director of the Indigenous Law Research Unit. I'm Cree. I'm from Soto First Nation, which is uh, in Treaty 8 uh, territory in Northeast British Columbia. And I'm an adopted member of the Gixan, the Northern Gixan. My name uh, in the House of Lujan is Gixgun. Thanks. Signa. Hey, Tante. Uh, great to be here. My name is Signa. I was born and raised in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, if people don't remember that. And um, my family um, on my mom's side is um, she's a foundling, uh, adopted, and on my dad's side is Métis. And uh, both sides are from the what's now the southeast corner of Saskatchewan, but also was on the other side of that border, um, close to the area of Turtle Mountain. And uh, right now, I'm very lucky to be the Director of Indigenous Outreach at Osgoode Hall Law School, and uh, where I'm also an Associate Professor. Well, welcome both of you to the podcast. And uh, Turtle Mountain area, I'm very familiar with myself being here in uh, southern Manitoba. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if our grandmas got their haircuts in the same place, but... uh, (laughs) Whenever I was with my grandma, we'd, we'd go to Melita and go to the Turtle Derby in Boisevain. <laughs> the Turtle Derby takes a very long time to complete. Yes, it's a very slow <laughs> event. Very slow event. So today we're going to talk about call to action number 28. And that, that calls for law schools to create a course that covers the history and legacy of residential schools, treaties, Indigenous law, Aboriginal crown relations, and other topics. 
it would require skills-based training in intercultural competency, conflict resolution, human rights, and anti-racism. Is it me, or does that sound like a lot of material to cover in one course? So let me uh, let me ask you, Brad. Uh, would would it be possible to do a course in uh, Canadian history, uh, the Canadian legacy of residential schools, Canadian perceptions of treaties, perceptions of Indigenous law, Crown <laughs> Aboriginal Crown relations, and other topics? Could there is it possible to think about? Uh, a Canadian course with that spans the breadth and depth of, of those topics. And I think if we if we look at it that way, we could see the straight up impossibility of it. But I do think that what is set out in call 28 is a way for a law school to think about the breadth of what uh, Indigenous uh, legal education should include and to find ways to to see whether whether and how aspects of of call 28 could be incorporated into a range of courses and then to choose uh, from those which would be which would make sense for a mandatory course given the larger project of Indigenous uh, legal education so there needs to be a bigger approach I just want to also say that I had the wonderful experience this week of listening to the uh, amazing uh, Constance Backhouse, and she talked about the importance of imagining vistas of radical change in legal education and in legal practice. And, you know, what she was saying is that, you know, basically she was challenging the emphasis on strictly skills-based legal education, and she was challenging the practice of law as it is, as opposed to law as it should be or could be. And so she was encouraging us to create a larger imagination of what's possible. And I think that in the spirit of this uh, radical change vista, you know, we can look at call 28 uh, within that larger frame and embrace it as, you know, we're not going to get it all but let's get some of it. Signa, what do you think? Oh, ditto. I think uh, especially what I really like about how Val said that, and, you know, of course, I, I, I need to uh, not give a great nod to Val for sort of the cousin auntie role she's had in my life for a long time. We'd never think twice about if a history department had one class called Canadian history, you know, in the sense of, saying, well, there's no possible way they can cover everything. So we can't think of it that way. And I like to think about the idea that everything when it starts out at its early stages is imperfect and, and evolving. And as well to that, the inspiration that a course will have on colleagues who don't necessarily focus in on that area, who are struggling themselves with how to integrate things, who are wondering about having an advanced class afterwards, that while we can, we can see the impossible nature of doing that, we can also find the ways that it might trigger conversations that could rumble some circles elsewhere as far as basic content they're doing, or also think of, okay, we've got sort of um, 
a foundational place here. Now, are there ways we can take a deeper dive about subjects that are within it as well? Before we were recording, I was I was talking about when I went to law school many years ago, and there really wasn't a lot of options. Can uh, an Indigenous framework be grafted onto the current law school culture, or do we need to basically tear things down and start over? So I'll, I'll take a crack at that. But just before I do, you know, one of the things that I've learned here at the University of Victoria is that uh, Indigenous law for lots of uh, non-Indigenous and sometimes Indigenous law professors is really quite frightening. You know, none of us, there is no intact Indigenous legal order in Canada. We're rebuilding all of that. That's what you see Indigenous peoples doing. And so none of us can say we're fully educated within different legal uh, orders. And so it's, it's, there's a rebuilding going on. And, and for lots of people, it's like stepping off a cliff. They don't know how to teach it. They don't know what it's going to include and so on. And, and one of the things that we've done here is produce a range of materials so that uh, people can see, okay, what might a lesson plan look like? What are the resources? How do I approach questions? And so we've produced, uh, for instance, uh, two graphic narratives. One is on Cree criminal law, and it has a complete 100-page teaching guide that goes with it for different audiences. The other is Nutsumat. It's on Coast Salish uh, water law, and similarly, we'll have a teaching guide that goes with it. And so when when professors have these materials, they can see that it's possible, it's doable, it's, you know, it's a way in. And we also have uh, a gender toolkit and casebook, and we have, you know, marital property on reserve uh, toolkits. So, you know, there's a lot of materials in addition to academic papers. And with that, you it stops being like a black box and instead becomes something that they can imagine themselves uh, doing. On your other question of, do you have to tear it all down and start over again? You know, in the seventies, I probably would have agreed with that because I thought a revolution was coming. However, uh, you know, I think now that there are two colonial stories out there that are really powerful. One is that our law is so different from your law that I can never possibly explain it to you and you can never possibly understand it. And what that denies is that we were and are intellectual people able to articulate our substantive laws, legal processes, legal principles, and so on, which is the work we're doing, of course. And we're capable of thinking across legal orders. Our ancestors did that. They were intellectual peoples. The other colonial story is that our legal orders and our law are so fragile that if you try and do anything with it, you're going to break it. And so therefore, you better leave it alone. And so those colonial stories paralyze what people, the the kind of thinking that people are willing to do, the kind of teaching that people are willing to do. And we have to undo those stories. And we have to support people to, to be the best that they can be, and they will make mistakes, and that's the way of it. So I, I, really, I really think that, that there's potential and possibilities that, that we've yet to fully realize. Signa, do you have anything to add? Oh, my gosh. How, how do I keep saying 
ditto in a conversation (laughs) and that's okay. But maybe I can sort of think of or like contribute some things that I thought of while Val was talking. One of the things that, uh, you know, I I heard um, Val mention the idea of Indigenous scholars also feeling nervous, you know, and you know, I feel like sort of frozen in my tracks is every once in a while, the way I have to think about it is, um, you know, uh, thinking of how um, some peoples might have some knowledge that is um, deeper and learned within the family and learned within the community. And there might be some peoples who don't have that history. And so are personally struggling with trying to do catch up and feeling a great privilege in learning, but also feeling a great burden to get it, to get it better. And, and I think in all of this, and I'm not sure if Val would agree with this, is in a sense of, um, I heard a poet last week um, describing her poetry and saying, have a gentle heart when, when you hear about hard things. And I thought um, there's so much of this that um, is so important for us to do, but we need a gentle heart as we see the moments where we're in shock and awe about how long it's been since someone has talked about Wakotawin or has talked about um, the role of Ogamas and also think it's very important to tell people about that stuff. But to also see that there's going to be so many moments where in the old school sort of ivory tower kind of way, we're so still learning, you know, so that whether we think of it as the the fabulous sort of packages and kits and tools we can share with people helping, or whether we think of how we're literally trying to make a syllabus up that's due in two weeks for a course, that we are are very aware that it's going to be hard on us too, and that we're going to be making mistakes, (laughs) and that it's important, and that how we decide to talk about it next term or next year or in a decade might be a little bit different as well too. And, and I think so many stages of the, of the lifting that's going on with the changes um, that are behind the issue of this call to action, so much of that lifting is heavy. Hmm. And it's even heavier than me trying to get a dead treadmill out of my house right now, which I'm looking at, which has barricaded me into my kitchen. Um, so please come over and help me. <laughs> but um, that that I just keep thinking I have to be supportive and finding humor and finding, you know, a way to make a cup of tea way more regularly than I would typically do, because this is going to be hard. And it's going to seem so imperfect so many times, but that's okay. And it's still important to sort of trudge on. In that respect, when I'm doing all of this, I, I never think as far as any area of um, topics and history and laws that I can learn, there is no possible way I will ever think of it in terms of me, especially being an expert. <laughs> and, and in fact, I, I think that kind of frame of mind, number one, rubs completely wrongly with how we're trained in sort of typical law school kind of ways, like somebody is a specialist in an area, or they have an expertise in something, or they practice this area. And, and I just find in, in all of the, the heavy lifting 
that is exciting and important to do in this area, there's, there's no way I can ever have that kind of frame of mind about it because I will miss the moments where I have to still be humble about the mistakes I'm going to make, where I'm going to find out some really important teachings one year and some even more important teachings the next year. It's like I, like I think in all the sort of tactile and sort of content things this call is asking for, it's also for sure asking of me to have a method, an attitude, a spirit that is welcoming of others and, and welcoming of me <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm struggling and feeling like I'm about to fall. Um, and, uh, and, and I think throughout all of this, we're probably all really better as well too when we're finding others who are going to help us during those moments of struggle. It, it said the manner of instruction is as important as the content. Yeah. How do we help the instructors to teach the material properly? Who, who teaches the teachers? Oh, Val teaches me. There well, you go. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, my, my colleagues here, and, and then I'm, I'm sure Cigna has been doing this as well. We've, we've been doing uh, all kinds of educational, you know, sessions with different law faculties for years um, and like on methodologies on, and we, we also like, we have a, a one month uh, summer intensive of indigenous legal methodologies that we often get other professors coming and enrolling in and as well as international students and lawyers and uh, along with PhD students and law students. So there's a, there's a want for people to learn We've also been uh, similarly engaged with different uh, educational sessions with the judiciary, uh, law societies, and, and so on. So there's a lot of work that is going on. And the other thing is, I think, I think that we, we have to take care not to reify Indigenous legal education. Law is got to do the hard work of law. Not all of it is exciting. Some of it is mundane and it's about solving problems and it's about making sure that there's respectful debate and that there's constructive processes for different opinions. And so every legal order, including indigenous legal orders, uh, had to have a, a scope of, of disagreement. You know, John Burroughs describes Indigenous law, well, any law, as having is being comprised of two stories. There's mm -hmm. one story that the law is this way, and there's another story that argues with that first story, right? And that's the nature of, of law. It's the nature of people collaboratively managing themselves and solving problems. And so I tell students and I tell anybody that I work with that the most respectful thing that they can do insofar as Indigenous law is to be critical of it, to ask the hard questions. I also tell my students that they're not important enough that they're going to break it if they disagree with it or if they critique it or if they analyze a, a Gixan story. So I'm Cree, but I teach Gixan uh, land and property law. And all of us, I think, I, I encourage people to work across the legal orders and to bring different perspectives and, and curiosity and, mm -hmm. and, you know, just imagination and, and so on to the work that they're doing. That's what we need. Mm -hmm. We don't need to reify it. We don't need to say there's only one way it's going to be done. Cause we, again, we got to stop shooting ourselves in the foot with that kind of thinking. 
Mm -hmm. And like, sort of like not accidentally freezing ideas that, you know, I think so many of us have been very critical of um, Uh the Vanderpeet decision for doing. And sometimes I think there's some metaphorical ways for sort of newbies to this area to understand, you know, so we can, you know, we can talk about the living tree kind of headspace, you know, Um, we can, you know, also find ways, I think, to, you know, mention to others, like, like, we wouldn't expect nations in Europe to be on the same page about everything all the time. So, so why do we expect Indigenous nations to agree about everything all the time? You know, that's not like the sign of conflict or the sign of different ways of solving a problem is not a sign of cultural weakness or a lack of laws. And um, I think, you know, sometimes, sometimes I, and I'm not sure, Brad, if you agree with this too, as a practitioner, you know, sometimes I'm nervous that I'm bringing up a metaphor to work as a tool for somebody who new to areas they want to know about that I risk disrespecting the indigenous laws weight and impact and at the same time trying to think of is there a moment where this person I'm I'm in a dialogue with can sort of have a really impactful moment of learning too all of the law schools at you know and I and I think indigenous scholars that I'm in contact with his friends and his mentors, I, I feel like I'm always trying to get little tips and tricks from them about how to see those little sparks of a moment to get people excited about Indigenous legal orders and making sure that I respect their learning at the level it is and the um, background they have, while also making sure that the sacredness, the um, it's not precedent setting, but the the impact and the uh, foundational strength of the indigenous laws is not decreased in its in its um, weight when I when I do that moment of um, welcoming on the verge of translating or sort of making an analogy to help people know the stuff just a little bit better. It's interesting um, because I've had. I've had conversations with and experiences with, uh, in this case, the judiciary, and and what I've what I've been experiencing is a real, legitimate, sincere interest in finding out about stuff, yeah. indigenous laws, indigenous legal traditions, and 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 trying to understand it because all of them went through the same sort of legal studies that we went through. Oh, I'm only 30, so maybe not me. Okay. Well, ah! <clears throat> no, I'm just kidding. Add 22 years to that. <laughs> there are constant uh, Indigenous legal education sessions going on on all manner of things, from child welfare to the environment. To yep. I've done um, all kinds of things with you know, dispute resolution, intellectual property, and others have done a huge range of, of sessions with the judiciary. One of the uh, people, you can start to see some shifts too in the kinds of decisions, at least so far in the lower courts, where uh, Indigenous law mm-hmm. Is, mm-hmm. is not treated just as a fact or as evidence, but rather as a resource or, or a mode uh, for reasoning and, and application of the law. Like so, and if you look at uh, the work of uh, Sebastian Gramond, for instance, you know, like you can see he's writing about uh, these 
these shifts in the judiciary. And he's also an advocate for a future incorporation of Indigenous legal principles and reasoning into uh, different levels of court. I don't know if you've heard of a paper called uh, The Duty to Learn or Not. It was written by the former Chief Justice of the Appeal Court of BC. And he, uh, it's a great paper. It's just short. He did it for a CLE a number of years ago before he, he passed on. But he said that, you know, there's all of these duties to consult, right? That that's what the law at that time was developing. And he was saying, there's a problem here. You know, as the judiciary, we have a duty to learn at Indigenous law. And, and he talked about this. So there, there have been some real champions, and, and like Sebastian, a current champion, of making sure that the judiciary um, is able to see its own role and, um, and potential uh, in, in taking up these, these questions. You know, it's, judges are the same as everybody else. There's lots of nervousness there that they're not going to get it right, that they'll be considered racist, that they'll do something wrong, they'll, that they'll break it, and so on. And we have to disabuse them of those fears uh, in a kind way with, as, as uh, Cigna has said, mm-hmm. with that gentle heart. Yeah, I mean, when you just think of, like, I teach torts law, would we ever think that a critical question about tort law would sort of bring the whole area of tort law crumbling down? Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> and like, like and, and I ask a question if not questions every day that are perhaps trying to do that. And it still hasn't happened. But, um, you know, like that idea of, you know, of thinking about the word critical in its fullest form, it means learning how something functions so that, so that um, you can use that tool better um, afterwards. It's not, it's not just a hundred percent positive gold stars. It's, asking questions about places where you pause, where you think it's not gonna fit with stuff you've learned in the past. And from confirming, at least for me, that you've learned it in a way that the presenter wants you to learn, you know? And, and all of those moments might, might sound a little bit non-positive when you pr- put them out there. But, but I think that, you know, Val's point of, of um, thinking that in the learning the judiciary needs to do, which all of us need to do, um, that we also really um, cheer people on um, as we say, yeah, and um, tell us where you've slowed down and feel like you don't quite get it. And let's talk about that. But tell us because you can't not learn this, you know? And, and, I, and I think that um, uh, there's lots of people who um, are very open in wanting to um, absorb more, but, but I think the three of us could probably all have some stories where we're trying to um, really grapple with the idea of parties saying they want to learn but then doing something that that makes us wonder if they're actually going to shut down once they start asking the critical questions. We develop these courses in law schools. Do they should these courses be mandatory? It's actually a question that's been posed to me in other um, 
in other forums. You know, I, I remember being at law school and, you know, indigenous students, we would be, there would be some, there'd just be outright open hostility towards us. You're taking the space of someone else yeah. who's more worthy. And, yeah, and yeah. then there, of course, there was also the, that underlying sort of hidden hostility, that uh, microaggression, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Do we make this, this learning mandatory in law schools? I think we can. Um, I mean, again, we need to, a law school needs to have the overall Indigenous legal education project, right? And the course, the mandatory course needs to be part mm -hmm. of that larger whole, not sort of some singular effort all by itself, unsupported by the rest or, and unconnected to the rest of the curricula or uh, the rest of the work that uh, goes on within the law school. So it, it, that's the, the spirit in which it needs to be um, uh, developed and, and taken forward. You know, here, um, the first two weeks of law school here, every single student uh, goes through Nicomosis, the, the Cree law, uh, Indigenous Cree law, and, uh, and they have to analyze it, they have to case brief it, they have to uh, talk about it, and then some professors will bring up the lessons uh, in constitutional law or in other um, courses. And so it's mandatory. You know, but it's a part of everything else. So it's not sort of like a separate thing that then some poor instructor has to stand up in front of an unhappy, you know, 150 students and talk to them. You know, so care can be taken to uh, ensure that uh, the legitimacy and the value is present at all times and so that the course is supported and that it's integrated into the rest of the law school because the one singular course mm -hmm, by mm -hmm. itself you're going to create problems yeah and uh on that word mandatory i think why i'm i'm pretty stalwart about having something that every everyone can take because i i also think too like every law school is its own personality so thinking about how the law school is functioning with the number of elective students can take, sort of how the terms function, even for first year students, there's sometimes some dynamics that in as far as the, the current curriculum setup that um, all law schools will be having on their mind. So that, for example, some, some flat out sort of pan Canadian idea of how to do this won't won't be there and also shouldn't be there because of the different nations uh, across the region that's now Canada. But I, I just always like throwing in the idea of mandatory for now to sort of be a, uh, a bit of a pebble in some people's shoes if they don't think it should be required. And I sort of get the strength to be stalwart about it because of my view that adults who are in university right now need a lot of catch up. And, you know, I think um, I was a pretty unusual kid in Saskatoon um, that I literally remember in kindergarten, um, our principal bringing in ceremonies um, uh, to the school via a chief. Um, so I, I am a very unusual woman in the decade of my life that I'm still in denial of, but as far as watching Indigenous and non-Indigenous folks figure things out together. But I think there's a lot of adults in university right now who 
are still even struggling to uh, figure out, although it's not complicated, we just need to cheer them on, figure out what um, the territory is for the space where they grew up. And so, you know, as we think of helping people's base knowledge and attitude leading to method, leading to techniques as a lawyer and a learner about Indigenous laws, I think we just need to be very candid with people who don't think there should be a course to say, do you know how to look up about your territory space and the indigenous law relationships that are there that by gum just might be brought up in court pretty regularly. And I think most of the time the answer is no. Most of the time it's no. And until we have, you know, um, people coming to law school who have a base knowledge about maybe not every Indigenous legal norm, of course, for a region where they're from, but unless their base knowledge is stronger, um, we can't, I think, think of anything but a mandatory course. You know, and, and I guess I'd say, for example, like, you know, when we have the first year um, constitutional law class, and I think all law schools would have this observation, that there's people in the class who have heard about the Constitution Act before, you know, and there's people who have taken an elementary and high school and maybe even have a copy of the Charter of Rights they had in their bedroom if they were a big nerd, that they've had this longer history of interacting with norms and nomenclature and the politics side and talking about social issues and economic issues so that by the time you talk about um, the Oaks test in constitutional law, they might have already, or RJR McDonald, they might have already um, had sort of experiential moments that learning that moment is just a little bit less difficult. And we're not there with base knowledge about um, Indigenous laws and Indigenous peoples and Indigenous peoples history in Canada. And, and I think until that gets stronger, um, I'm, I'm going to be very much on on the side of saying, I want to see it in the curriculum. And, and I, I um, find myself, I'm like six of one and half a dozen of another about how to do that at Osgood Hall. What we um, brought in is that everyone has to have, by the time they leave Osgood, they have to have taken a course that is from a basket, a set of classes. And, and I think we're, we're trying to sort of think of that ebb and flow of um, how people might have understandings that they've brought with them. So whether it's, you know, pre-law university training where they've taken some issues um, or it's their family background, that we have a number of courses that they can choose from that, that represent their, their position in learning. Um, and we also have an intensive program um, that people can do a whole term just on um, Indigenous peoples and the law. And we have a law camp and um, uh, we have in, amongst that basket of courses, we have courses that people can take in their first year for that requirement. So I think what we're really working hard on is 
trying to find a method that that represents the variety of starting points we might have when students sign up for law school. But but I still always find in that, you know, just in working with students in those courses that, you know, um, they're they're not they're not as uh, short with knowledge as I guess I'd say the judiciary regularly is, you know, and I'm sure the three of us have had conversations with justices where they're so enthusiastic and that's so wonderful. And they don't quite remember what treaty they're in, even if they're in the prairies, you know, and um, and so we just think, wow, you know, like, let, let's let's talk. Let's talk about how you're in Treaty 4. Isn't that great? Have you ever looked up Treaty 4? You know, sort of start the conversation that way. But but that we have students in that kind of boat, too. And um, and it's it's important in a sort of lawyerly way to think of almost some practicalities that we can make sure that they know about in even a brief sense, but know about. So by the time they leave the law school, as I tell my students that they're going to have opportunities to make it easier for other people who are learning. And that in a sense, that's the task I've given them in learning with them. And, and I'm also very quick to say they'll probably be unusual at the law firm they're going to work at because they'll probably have a phenomenal amount of potential for learning things that senior lawyers simply don't have. So in both of your experience, what students say about their experience with courses dealing with Indigenous issues, with Indigenous legal traditions? What, what, what do you hear back? Uh, just before we uh, leave the last question, uh, Brad, Canada is multi-juridical. That's becoming an accepted uh you know, way of thinking about our country. And law schools have to catch up to that if they haven't already. And what it means mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. that if we don't have education, some education, some aspects of, of our legal education, uh, including Indigenous law, then that legal education is incomplete. It doesn't equip students to adequately understand yeah a multi-juridical Canada and it's a problem. And so I think it's a deficit that like people have to start recognizing it as a deficit. And so that, um, so that's just another approach insofar as students. um, Well, there's all kinds of students and there's all kinds of courses. I mean, I also teach when I'm able uh, indigenous feminist legal studies uh, along with, you know, property law and gifts and land and property law and uh, other courses. So, um, and then I mentioned the uh, summer intensive that we do, you know, a student who is able to fully engage with indigenous law, if that's the course that they're, they're doing, it can't help, but, expand the way that they think and the way that they see the world and the the kind of potential that they're going to have. You know, the kinds of questions that we have students uh, when they're thinking about Indigenous law, you know, like, you know, the, the questions that I ask is like, what makes law law? What makes law legal? Um, what uh, what are the legitimacies in this society? How do you understand legitimacy? What are the sources of that? Uh, what are the legalities that comprise a legal order that have to be present in order for law to be law? So 
the the thing is that those kinds of questions should be asked by every law student, but but they should be asked and talked about around every kitchen table. That's the work of citizenry. Like so, mm-hmm. fundamentally, you know, law, indigenous law, is about indigenous citizenries. It's about all of us having a grammar through which we can talk about governance and our economies and um, the 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 kinds of norms that we want to aspire to, the way that we want to solve problems, that whose voices should be heard, um, how we should handle disagreements, where how the debate should take place, like all of these things, like this is the richness and the promise of law. There's the failures of law too that we have to make sure we understand. But the, the, these are larger conversations beyond the rules that, which is sometimes the way that people understand law, and that's a pretty impoverished view of it. So, so what we're uh, encouraging here is to to think um, on a much larger scale about to contextualize indigenous law within that larger frame, and that's the work that all other law should be doing as well, so that we don't just produce. Uh, technical focused practitioners, but people who are able to think much more broadly, as well as have the kinds of skills and the best practices that will make them good practitioners uh, when they're out there working uh, with people. So the feedback from students then is usually about those larger ideas and how those larger ideas inform the practice so that they can see the assumptions that are made so that they can see the importance of transparency and reasoning and and um, power dynamics that that law is a part of whether it's an indigenous power dynamics or non-indigenous power dynamics so it's um there's a lot of excitement sometimes there's a lot of resentment because it's, it's hard work um, and People get there, and um, and I'm pretty excited by the young supple minds that I see. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to say this, and and I'm sure uh, Valerie will get what I mean too. But this this is especially this is especially for you, Brad, in a in a Prairie Cree kind of way. And I'm going to tell you something that I think I've told every class since I've started teaching law school, and it's kind of a good. Um, barometer for me to see how some other moments might go. And it's the following thing I've told my classes. Sometimes I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the auntie you wish you weren't related to. And, um, and, I, and I find, um, for example, talking about that idea of being an auntie to people when they're learning, um, uh, I get some faces that are like, what is going on here? <laughs> And then I get some, and then I get some people who giggle, and I've always found that um, you know, as, as if I was especially back home, I'd say local folks would know what I mean, and um, and um, some of their their colleagues might be, I guess she's kind of weird. Let's see what's going to happen, and and I guess what I find as far as a student response is, um, and and this is the. For example, the one really good thing about if you have courses where you're working with students all year, because I think sometimes in these really hard moments, what is especially hard 
when it's students who are new to something and potentially nervous for ways that, you know what, we totally understand because we'd say, I'd be nervous too. Um, working with them in the time periods we have with students doesn't let these sort of um, developing or the blossoming or the, um, uh, the uh, building up of relationships the way any of us would like to do. Um, but I really find um, with all of my classes, I always have a feast on the final day. And I'm always so, you know, um, through the tears students have, through the, the teasing and laughing that we do with each other, it's, it's, so, um, it's so warming, heartwarming to me to see how um, people who I'm potentially nervous that they might not have an opportunity to be discussing Indigenous peoples and Indigenous laws in the way we have in the class, um, that, you know, they're on their merry way after they leave the class. But that when we've talked about the heavy things of like what the, what the um, H-E double hockey sticks colonialism means and how do you notice that? And how do you bring up that word when you leave this classroom? Um, they feel better about how they're going to do that or how they think about how you know, learning some stories such as the owl and the raven can be taken as seriously as any decision they read from the Supreme Court of Canada. They know that. And um, I find that, I, I think I'm an instructor that, um, uh, as I said, is, is sometimes the auntie they wish they hadn't bumped into on some days, <laughs> but that I also love getting the hugs from students about a year and a half after it's over <laughs> and, um, and, and find too that one of the reasons why we can really um, uh, stress the importance of um, this learning within law schools is how when we hear from students after, after they've left law school in the, in the way that um, this information and us talking about processes and methods being differently helps them be better lawyers. And, and so we can talk about it in, in big, really almost theory ways that are so important to be sort of thinking about how our vocabulary and our um, uh, sort of overarching sort of influences on the Canadian legal system have really harmed so many peoples and especially indigenous peoples and we need to notice that in everything we do and then we can find out that we have some student that we thought couldn't stand our class and is working at a law firm that has you know a a, a client a client from prince albert who who wants who wants to talk about something that um a municipality is challenging as far as a traditional ceremony. And they may not know everything to bring up with their senior lawyer, but they know to go read the treaty first, you know? And, and I think that's where I find um, the, the, the conversations with students so much fun is that the learning is heavy and it's heavy on their heart. So we might not get the, um, oh, this is a great class. I just finished writing the final kind of response from them. 
Um, but we will find as the months and years uh, evolve that, um, that they're seeing the indigenous laws in spaces they never noticed them before and they feel um, even better about the responsibility they have, which I always tell them that you have a responsibility to make it easier for people who come after you and the responsibility they have for broaching the subject with others about the indigenous laws that are around um, the people they work with as well. Val, Signa, we could keep talking for hours, I think, about this um, area. Unfortunately, time just won't allow us to. I want to thank you both from the bottom of my heart, Megwitch, for being so open and honest, for sharing your wisdom. This is going to be a fantastic podcast. So thank you again. Thank you, Brad. I really appreciate the opportunity and I love, uh, you know, being able to, to share the conversations with Cigna. Really appreciate your, your, uh, your effort here. Thank you. Thanks. And this has just been so great. And uh, you, you two are awesome cousins. Thanks so much for having me here. And um, uh, nice, nice to talk to two people who are back out West while I'm out here. In this episode, I've been talking with Val Napoleon, co-founder of the Joint Degree Program in Canadian Common Law and Indigenous Legal Orders at the University of Victoria, and Signa Domshanks, who teaches a number of subjects at Osgoode Hall, including a course titled Indigenous People and Canadian Law. Thank you for listening. We want to hear your stories about your experience as an Indigenous person with the legal profession, as a practitioner, as a student, or as an academic. Let us know on Twitter at at CBA underscore news, on Facebook, and on Instagram at at Canadian Bar Association. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. And to hear us in French, listen to our Juris Branche podcasts.